Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Lammer, here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Good morning to you, fellas. Hi, guys. What is up, Aaron? What have you got for us on the show? I had a lot of fun uh, this week on the show. I got to talk to Chuck Klosterman, who we've been wanting to have on the show for many years. I know this is a cliche that we say this about a lot of people, but it's true. Uh, He has a new book out. You probably know who Chuck Klosterman is, I feel like. You can Google him if you don't know who he is. But if you do know who he is, you should know that he has a new book out called The 90s. The 90s, unsurprisingly, is a decade I enjoy talking about, (laughs) particularly some of the things that Chuck Klosterman is interested in uh, about the 90s, uh, such as uh, alternative rock, uh, the concept of selling out, and uh, various other topics uh, you may remember if you were a teenager in the 1990s, as I was. Great, great conversation. I'm always here for the uh, Aaron nostalgia interviews. I also like that we've gotten to the place with these intros where it's just like, here's the guest. Uh, Just Google him. You'll figure it out. (laughs) K-L-O-S-T-E-R-M-A-N. Chuck Klosterman. Um, What else do we need to get out of the way? Well, we're brought to you in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make the show. Thanks to them. And here's Aaron with Chuck Klosterman. Welcome, Chuck Klosterman. Hey, it's great to be here. I want to get to your book, The 90s, but I want to start with what you were doing in the 90s. Namely, like, how did you get into writing professionally? Well, so I started college at the University of North Dakota in 1990. And I was walking around the campus during the first weekend. <laughs> And they had those like, it was like a career fair or like an activities fair. I don't even know what it was, but there was a stand for the college newspaper. And I went up there and I had written in for the high school newspaper and it always seemed like something I'd always done. And I just assumed at the college level, it was like high school where you just kind of wrote for free. And I was astounded that they paid people. I couldn't believe it, that they paid people to write for this college newspaper. So I was like, well, I'm going to go to the football games anyways. I'll just cover the football team. And that really was how it began. Um, And then I became an editor at the paper. And I was just extremely fortunate in the sense that the thing that I seemed to have kind of a natural ability to do was something that I also really enjoyed. And, And I just felt very lucky that so many other people I knew, they were struggling so much and like, what do they major in? What do they want from their life? And I, I never had that struggle. I mean, you know, I mean, some of it was kind of arbitrary and capricious. One of the reasons I majored in journalism is because I understood what the job was at the end. Like you majored in journalism and became a journalist. Like I was like, well, if you major in history. I got to become a historian. I don't, I don't know any historians or whatever. Um, so that's, that's kind of how it was. I mean, it was, a, just, I think, a very normal way to get into the newspaper industry during that period of time. 
So what was the first time that you started writing in what I would consider the Chuck Klosterman voice? Like, where did you first start feeling like you could sort of speak in your own voice as writing? And how did people react to that kind of writing as you got going? Well, that's an interesting question because my honest answer is it just seems like that's how it always was. I mean, I, I, when you, when you talk to young people, particularly who want to get into journalism or writing, they often ask this question. It's like, how do you find your voice? And it's in many ways, it is the most important quality, but it's also kind of an unteachable quality because your voice is just there. It's just, it's in you and you just got to get it out. You know, now, I don't know. I just, I, I, I've just always done what seemed natural to me. I, I don't, so I don't, it, it never feels as though uh, the idea of a voice is something that I searched for or found or just, I, I you know, so like you say, how did people uh, react to it? I mean, I always seemed like there were some people who liked it too much and some people who didn't like it too much. <laughs> I just it always seemed that way to me. I was always surprised. I was always shocked by the reaction. I, to the, I think my whole life I will be. It was just always that way when I was on like on a small campus at, at UND. It, it seemed like it, it got it on like a more attention than I would have guessed when I worked in Fargo. That's how it was. When, when I worked in Akron, that's how it was. And I, I went to New York and that's how it was again. So it, 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 just seems to be the way that it is. And I just got used to it over time. Like it doesn't, it's, I'm never, I'm never surprised. (laughs) I mean, I'm always surprised it happens and yet so used to it that I'm just like, well, that's how it is. I guess I was also thinking about this with regards to you write in the book in the nineties about uh, the movie clerks and sort of the ascendance of people being able to sort of have this in-depth conversation about the most trivial parts of life. Um, is that like, is that how you were when you were a kid? Where does that kind of voice come from? Do you think, uh, in yourself? You know, I, I, I think that I would have a different answer, uh, if I thought about it, but I don't, I don't think about it. I, I just, I'm not uncomfortable just being myself. It seems the best way to do it. I mean, it always, it always, it always seems like the best way to, to write is to just find whatever is like the most effective way. I mean, like my style is no style. And I think that is the best style. Like you just, you 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 start with, with all this information and all these ideas and kind of all these concepts and maybe the mood you want to reflect or any of these things. And I, the example I always use is just like, it's like a ball of yarn. And then writing is straight, straightening the yarn out, just like straightening that ball out into a string. So, you know, what was I like when I was a kid? I don't know, probably weird, probably annoying. I, it's probably what I was like, you know. Um, I, uh, I, uh, I, I had a slightly different experience, like where I would sit in class in high school and, you know, like the teacher would ask a question and nobody would raise their hand, including myself. And I was just like, well, everybody knows this. We're just, it's weird to raise your hand and answer the question. Everyone here is sitting here knowing the answer. And then later I realized probably not. Like maybe no one knew the answer except me in that class. Like, you know, like maybe I was the only person who had read the thing that we were assigned. And then when I went to college, I know that the sort of the cliche is that like, oh, this kid from a farm, he's from this small rural place. He goes to college. And he's just blown away by the diversity of the experience. He's meeting all these people he's never seen before. For me, it was a little bit the opposite in the sense that I went to college and I was shocked to find there were people like me at all. Like people who didn't just like listen to Guns N' Roses, but like wanted to think about it when they weren't playing it. Like it was just, it, I, it, it was, it was really uh, like, I, 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 I'd felt very intellectually isolated without even realizing it. I felt intellectually isolated, but assumed that was the normal way a person exists. That it's just normal to feel like the way I am is singular and everybody else is sort of dealing with the same sort of interpersonal singularity. And it was very surprising to meet people who seem to share the way I looked at the world. Which is in some ways a big part of the story of the internet itself, 
which is a big part of the nineties is this idea of like all of these disparate people who would have never encountered each other outside of this tool, uh, that, uh, would help, uh, uh, niche, uh, enthusiasts, uh, encounter each other. Um, you write a lot of the book about like how the nineties felt like, um, how it felt to be a person in the nineties. And, you know, that's like a, it's like a weird thing to talk about how something felt because it's talking about how you felt, but it's also talking about this sort of collective feeling. I'm curious, like, as you tried to sort of bring the nineties, uh, to life in that way, like what were your sources and, and how did you like probe your own memory? Well, the sources are like, they're kind of listed in the back of the book. Basically what I would do is it's a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would, there are periods of my life that I can remember pretty vividly and and the nineties are one of them. It's, it's odd. I I have in some ways a clearer memory of that period, especially the early half of the nineties. Um, that seems much easier for me to sort of intellectually access than, you know, 10 years ago, which I think uh, one of the things I kind of just kind of mentioned in passing that book is like this idea of like the slow cancellation of the future. And uh, I I really feel like that is something that's happening. Like the whole Mark Fisher idea, I think is is really true. Um, But what I would do is I would have these, this, this sort of kind of textural memory of the nineties. And then I would go back to see if it seemed to match, um, like uh, how uh, the nineties were covered at the time or what was, you know, um, uh, sort of, you know, mainstream attempts at sort of capturing what uh, was uh, alleged to be the way the experience was. Um, and the tricky thing is, is like the way something feels and the way something actually was, isn't necessarily the same. Like you can look back at the nineties from a real technical standpoint and actually see a lot of the ideas from the 1980s finally coming to fruition. I mean, like, you know, like um, changes in banking, for example, or, or like a, um, a lot of things that we associate uh, as 1980s phenomena actually happened in the nineties. And yet, there was a stridently sort of different experience, particularly to being a young person. Now, okay, so I was 18 when the 90s start, and I'm 28 when they end. Um, uh, now, I some could say like, well, still, you know, it's like your experience isn't universal. That's absolutely true. My experience isn't universal. But I was living through a time period. Um, I was consuming a lot of uh, of mass media because remember. Like I'm living in the middle of North America, like I'm living in North Dakota. So it's like the kind of uh, cultural information that gets you to you there in Fargo or whatever is like the biggest things. So I'm kind of having this macro experience of the time. I- I'm not really involved with niche cultures, except for the niche cultures um, that have been uh, sort of, uh, you know, adopted by the world at large. You described the easy part for you being the voice stuff, what was the the hard part? Like wh- when you were writing those early books and um, working in Fargo and, and Akron, what were like, what were the things that you struggled with as a writer? Well, I mean, some of the things I struggled with that um, I wasn't aware that I was struggling with, which is a very common thing, which is in your twenties and early thirties, you have a assumption that, well, I'm an adult now and my understanding of the world is correct and static. Like it's like, you know, a 20 year old person has a lot of information and access to a lot of information, but I I just, I wasn't intellectually ready to write about some of the things I was writing about. Like I would, when I was, um, you know, like a film critic, when I was 24, I didn't understand film with the depth that was really necessary to do that um, in a way that was, you know, uh, correct is a weird word to use. But it was like, like I was sort of doing it just totally by feel. So, you know, I would I would see a film and I would review it sort of based on the limited experience I had, you know, which at the time seemed like enough experience. Like I was completely, I was much, much more confident as a writer at 25 
than I am at 49. Like there's no comparison. Like I just believed that the sort of the sense that, uh, that I had and I, I could just sort of kind of figure things out as I went. <laughs> and um, it was almost like the style mattered more than the substance, which is a very common thing for young writers. It's like, because, you know, you know, when you're young, um, if you read writing that seems like really dense and there's all this, you know, just, just, it's just kind of saturated with cognitive dissonance and you got to read every sentence four times to understand what's going on. And it sort of seems self-contradictory when you're young, you read something like that and you're like, Oh, this must be great. It's like, I just don't get it yet. And then as you get older, you realize that writing is a communicative art. So if you can't communicate ideas, you're not doing a good job, you know? And I didn't think that way when I was young, when I was young, my main goal was to have people read what I wrote and be like, that was incredible. That was great writing or whatever. Like I, it was almost like it was the wrong kind of attention because it, it just, that's just how it was. Um, also it's like reporting to learn how to report just takes time and, and you can't, you can't learn it in college. You just got to do it, you know? So, uh, that took time as well. Um, you know, the things you have to learn, sometimes that's just like, like they're very mechanical things. You know, it's like, for example, when I was, when I was a newspaper reporter and say I was covering a band or whatever, like you couldn't drink with the band. You weren't really supposed to hang out with them in any social way whatsoever. You weren't supposed to have a relationship with the artist at all, you know? Um, and then when I got to Spin Magazine, uh, I kind of realized that was actually what they wanted you to do more than the interview in a way. It was like, that was where you, that was the thing. It was like sort of you, you, you kind of integrate yourself with the artist and, and somehow the story comes out of that. And I was never really comfortable with that. I was always much more comfortable in the newspaper way, but that's how I just, that's kind of, and I, and I did to a degree carry that over to magazine writing. I think in a way that like a lot of other people I worked with or peers I knew did not. I mean, you know, uh, I don't really do much like profiling or feature writing anymore, but at the end when, you know, when I was doing that, I would basically sit down with the person and say like, Hey, look, like we're not going to have any relationship after this. You're only here because you're promoting something. I'm only here because I'm a journalist. I can ask you things that like, I can't ask a normal person. So I'm just going to ask you the things that are interesting to me. Uh, and I hope that, uh, that, you know, that, that you're willing to sort of answer these questions. And I was pleased by how much that improved the experience, I think, for both me and the person I was interviewing. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something. Like very quickly, the voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of long form get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docuseries, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now. I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. 
Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong, and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. It's interesting because I was going to ask you a question about profile writing that almost cast you in the opposite role. So I'm, I'm interested in where this thread goes. What I was going to ask you about is, like, I've talked to a lot of people on the show who write profiles, and a lot of them describe this kind of fly on the wall kind of quality where it's like, well, I just try to recede into the background and, and almost get people to forget that I'm there. And you strike me as someone who has kind of a big personality who who doesn't easily recede into the background. What is your persona in the interviewer's chair like? Well, I mean, no different than this, I guess. I mean, you know, uh, you know, okay. So I, I, I do have a benefit that I think some people who did profiles did, do not have in the sense that I have been profiled many times. Like many people have interviewed me and that really in some ways made me, um, I'm in a better position to do it, even though at the same time, you know, there is a certain freedom in like seeing yourself as somehow completely separate from the experience. You know, a lot of times when you're, you're young, um, you kind of think like, well, you know, I'm interviewing this person, this famous person, Dave Matthews or whatever, you know, Nikki six, whoever it is. And then you're like, well, they're not going to care about this. You know, like, like they're not even going to read this or whatever. It's like, and then you kind of realize over time that the only people who really care are you and them. It's everybody else who kind of casually consumes it. You know, the idea of just sort of like receding into the furniture. I, I mean, I, that, I, I guess that, I mean, that works, certainly works for some people. That's not really what I do. I mean, uh, my thing is that if you're interviewing someone, you have access to their mind or at least what parts of their mind they're willing to expose in public. And I want to address that directly. Like, I mean, I could never be like Susan Orlean or whatever and just hang out with somebody for a month, nor would I ever let someone hang out with me a month if they wanted to write about me. I would never do that. You know, I think that's a weird thing in some ways. Um, Interviewing is an imperfect process, and yet it is the best process we have in getting people to sort of respond to what other people think of them or what people assume their art is or the reality behind whatever it is they do. So I ne- if somebody says like, okay, you got to interview this person, but you only got 45 minutes, you're going to be in the hotel lobby, you got 45 minutes with him. That never bothered me. I was like, I can do it in 45 minutes. I can just, it's like, I, cause I know what I want to get to. And I know that I'm gonna, I'm not, I'm not, there's no question I'm not going to ask because it's like, I, I'm just going to just ask the question straight ahead. I just I always think that's the best way. I, I it, it doesn't sound like a very sophisticated sort of nuanced style, but I, it's not, you know, because the thing is a lot of profile writing really ends up being a form of essay writing where you also have quotes and access to the individual. So when a lot of people say like, they just kind of want to hang out and kind of disappear, Uh, What they're really doing is like they have an idea for an essay they write and they're just going to kind of use this person also as like a as like kind of a a piece within that larger story where I mean my hope when I write a profile is that the thing people are talking about is something that person said That, that 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 is my goal. Like if somebody talks about a profile I write and the main thing they seem to be interested in is how it was written that kind of means I didn't get anything interesting from the person. Because that's what you do if you like if you if you're doing a profile on someone and they don't say anything interesting, then you got to figure out a way to make the story sort of readable and entertaining and interesting that almost sort of like jumps over uh, the content of what that individual thought. What was the hardest thing for you to 
capture in, in writing about the 90s. I think for me, the concept that's the most nebulous was like selling out. Mm. Like I was like, I don't know if I could describe this to my daughter when she's old enough to understand. Like, I actually think you do a very good job of it. But if I had not had the benefit of your book, I really couldn't remember why selling out was such a big deal or even exactly what selling out was other than I talked about it constantly during the 1990s. Well, I mean, that, that selling out is something I felt like, okay, I might not be the best at describing this, but I'm not bad because I've thought about this a lot. Uh, I, I felt like it was very much, I don't know, like almost injected into the way I understood the world, particularly during the first half of the nineties, you know, cause the nineties are interesting. It's almost like there's two nineties. There's like the first half and the second half. And they're not exactly like, they're, like they're, there's definitely kind of a shift uh, when that happens. But I think the idea of selling out uh, is also like something I understand because I definitely realized how damaging it was to me in some ways. And that, and that really came back with this book in the sense that I am now supposed to do all of these interviews and all of these podcasts promoting this book. And because it's a book about the nineties and I've just spent a year thinking about the nineties and I have sort of, in some ways, like time traveled back to the person I was not intellectually, but emotionally in the nineties, it feels incredibly uncomfortable to me. And I, 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 I feel this constant urge to undercut the book itself. Um, and, and that's, and that, that's, that's like, in some ways what selling out really was, it was like, uh, you, you didn't sell out by stopping yourself from having something succeed like something had to succeed against your will. One of the things that was so interesting about selling out was it wasn't even the money. It was like, you're trying to sell your product to people who aren't like you. Like it was okay to, to have your work beloved by your peers, but that was it. It had to be people like you. If it was anybody else, that was an attempt to be, you know, sort of appreciated by these strangers you had no relationship with. And that was really the problem much more. So I think young people assume that selling out is only about money. That if you try, if you try to do something to make money, that means you're selling out because the word sell is in there, but that's not really how it was. I mean, what you were selling out was this idea of your integrity and what your integrity was, was somehow not doing anything to make other people like you that they could only appreciate what you did on your terms. And if you did anything, if you made any shift in what you did or the way you presented it to make it more sort of palatable to people uh, who wouldn't normally have a relationship with you, that was seen as kind of desperate and uncool. Yeah. I mean, thinking about this, you know, in the absolute um, creator of the journalism industry as a way to make a living and, the music industry, probably not much better. Part of what is kind of hardest to understand about the, the selling out era was this idea that there was a choice, right? I mean, a lot of people now would be like, please let me sell out. I I'll get paid a bunch. If I sell out, like, where do I sign up for this? Um, it like describes this reality in which people can either choose to sell out or choose some sort of a true path and the true path, you know, maybe it was that you didn't become rich and famous, but there was some path for yourself. It, it, it sometimes feels like in lieu of the selling out culture, there's sort of nothing there uh, in present culture. Well, you know what you say, like there's a certain person now who'd like, who'd be like, yeah, let me sell out. I, I want to make money or whatever. I think that was actually the way things were 15 years ago, mm. like sort of, the beginning part of the 21st century. I think now for a lot of people, it would be like, what do you mean? Like, why wouldn't I be doing that? Like what, what other mode of operation is there? Like I'm making a commercial product. Why wouldn't I want it to be commercial? Like, I think that, that that is one thing that has changed with selling out. It went from being something that people thought was crazy kind of after it became, after it kind of receded from the public to the part where it's like kind of undescribable. It's, it doesn't seem as something that, that one would even consider, you know, um, now it's just like, it's like, that is part of the process. Uh, the idea of choice though, that did seem like 
I mean, there was, there was some reality in that because if you talk to a young person now, like I'm saying like a smart kind of engaged 25 year old person now, and you say like, what is the central problem in society? Um, they'd probably say capitalism. That's a very popular answer now, that capitalism is the problem. Where if you were to ask someone that question in say 1993, they more likely would have said commercialism. The idea that you took something and the thing itself had merit, but then the way it was presented to the public and the way it was attempted to be sold and the way that, that, that it was packaged was the problem. That they took something that was made, you know, had inherently good and sort of made it into something that would be bigger than it uh, naturally should have been. Whereas if you look at capitalism and see that is the problem, the thing itself is the problem. It doesn't matter what its merits are or aren't. Anything that sort of promotes capitalism, props capitalism up and is a tool of capitalism. Like in a lot of ways, if you view capitalism as the central problem in society, it's a very pessimistic view. Um, whereas if, you know, and that's, I'm not, that's not a criticism of people who think that. I'm just saying that it is pessimistic in the sense that almost anything you like uh, is a detriment uh, to the problem that you see sort of immersing every other aspect of the world. Where if you think commercialism is the problem, you think the product is good. Like you still think like, you know, like this record has merit. This movie has merit. This book has merit. But the problem is how other people take that and try to package it and give it to other people. So it did seem somewhat like a choice, you know, and you, there, there were ways in the 90s to stop success from happening in that way. I mean, you know, like, like, so Pearl Jam's the biggest band in the world after, you know, in the mid nineties or whatever. So they're like, we're going to stop making videos. We're going to sue Ticketmaster and undercut our own ability to tour. You know, we're going to put deep tracks on these records that are pretty much unlistenable and sort of make it sort of uh, like a, like a constructed avant-garde nature, you know, like some of the things on Vitology or whatever. Um, now, Pearl Jam still remained very popular and very big, but they did stop themselves from having like a Guns N' Roses like trajectory. Like they did stop that from happening. Uh, and then there were bands, you know, like a band like Godhead Silo or something. I mean, they could have tried to do things differently. They could have, you know, and they could have ended up becoming a band that sells half a million records or whatever. But they were like, no, no, we like we, we just do this thing that we do on the terms that we want. So there was some choice in that, I think. I think that, that the choice you're talking about wasn't a complete fiction. You experienced a form of this kind of success yourself. I mean, your first book came out during your late 20s, I want to say. Yeah, well, it was 2001, so I was, I was 29. You were at the tail end of your 20s, and you were also at the tail end of the 1990s, the anti-sellout era. Uh, this book comes out. It's very successful. What was that like for you? And, and what, how do you feel like it affected the trajectory of your life? Well, you know, in truth, that's not how it was, though. Hmm. I mean, it seems that way now, but that's not how it was. I mean, so Fargo Rock City comes out in 2001. And it got reviewed a lot. And it seems like within the music, like kind of the music press, it was a significant thing. But, you know... My advance for that book was $25,000, which was the lowest advance you could get for a book at that time, pretty much. And the hardcover sold, I think, 7,000 copies at the time, maybe 8,000 copies. So it wasn't, it wasn't successful. It was just, it was, it was successful to people who were really, really into music writing. And that's how I ended up getting the job at Spin. So then I'm working at Spin and Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs comes out. And they, I think the hope was that, well, maybe this book will sell 10,000 copies. That got like a little more attention. So it did better than that. So then they were like, oh, Killing Yourself to Live, this third book. This is the big one. Because I got, I got $25,000 for the first book. And then I got $45,000 for Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. And that just was mind-blowing to me. I mean, when you just, I can't, I couldn't believe that that I, I just I'd never for the longest time, pretty much all of the 90s, I don't think I ever had more than a thousand dollars in the bank. I I I know I didn't, you know. So and, and then I so I get these advances or whatever, and I'm like, okay. So then the third book's coming out, and they assume that killing yourself to live now will be the big book. 
That's what the publisher kind of thinks. So the advance is much bigger and the publicity is much more. And then it actually didn't do as well as they thought, but somehow to the process of trying to sell Killing Yourself to Live, the soft cover of Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs just started selling like crazy. <laughs> and it's just been a life-changing thing. I mean, when I die, if anybody writes about me, that's the book they're going to mention. I, I will never probably have a book successful in that way. Um, so, I mean, that was like, we say, what was that like? I mean, it was, it was bizarre because it just, it so exceeded any expectations or dreams that I had that I just was not ready for it. And because of just the way New York media is, uh, I think then the perception of me changed, uh, even though I, 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 I don't, I don't like, I don't know, maybe, Maybe it was my fault. I don't know. But it's like, it's sort of, that sort of shifted. And then I kind of felt paranoid a lot of the time because it would be like, you just, you feel like you're constantly being watched. And that's only in New York. Like New York is really the only place in America where writers are famous. It's, you know, you know, it's, it's true. It's like, it's, it's, it's a strange thing that if you're, if you're a successful writer in New York, it is just a completely different experience than being a super successful writer anywhere else. A mildly successful writer in New York is 10 times more famous than a super successful writer in Omaha or where it just, that's how it is. Um, I, I will say that one regret I have is the experience of that stopped me from enjoying the good fortune that I had. Like I, I, I wasn't really able to uh, enjoy what had happened. This thing that had happened that was much greater than anything I'd hoped because the negative stuff was just sort of, it was just kind of there all the time. But then, you know, it was also because I was young and I didn't know any better and, and I was confused and certainly I think it would have been different if it had happened to me when I was even younger or if it had happened to me now, but it kind of happened in a middle point of my life, you know, like if I, if it would have happened when I was really young, like if it had happened when I was 22 or whatever, I think I would have almost enjoyed the negative attention as much as the positive attention. Cause when you're really young, you just want attention. And if it happened to me now, I would have more of a cognitive understanding this is just sort of how media works and kind of how celebrity works. And, you know, you can't have this good part of your life without the bad part. They're just, they're interlocked and, you know, but I was in the middle and that was, that was hard. Do you think about your own legacy as a writer? Well, it's hard to say because Okay, there's there's three possibilities. One is that you have a legacy and it's positive and the work you did sort of exists beyond your time writing it. Another possibility is that you have a legacy but it's negative and that you exist sort of as an example of what people use about what they didn't like about a time period or what they didn't like about a certain kind of writing. And then the third possibility is that there's just no legacy whatsoever and you just disappear and that it's just none. Okay. And that your, and your legacy ultimately is that you were popular in the present tense and then your popularity just evaporated and you're sort of only remembered by a certain kind of historian who notes that you were like, like a temporary fad kind of, you know? So of those three possibilities, two are bad, really. <laughs> I mean, it's like having a negative legacy is definitely bad. Being forgotten wouldn't be awful uh, because ultimately like I'll be dead anyways. Or, but, um, you know, uh, there's also a, a weird thing about when, they, when you ask a question like that, it is impossible to answer it without seeming arrogant. The idea to say that like, oh yes, I consider how I will be perceived when, you know, I'll be, 2060 or whatever it's like like even though 
you asked that question and I provided an answer simply by providing an answer. It proves that somehow I have thought of this or whatever. And that seems extremely egocentric. So if the question is like, do I think about it? I guess I try not to think about it, but the fact that I could answer this question proves that I must, you know? I mean, sometimes you read these people, it's like sometimes certain outsider artists or musicians where they've built this elaborate world within their own work, whether people are reading it or it's popular or not, as if someone's later going to discover it and sort of find this whole universe and find interconnections and find sort of value in that they, they tried to build a larger structure with their career. And then there are other people, and this is totally valid, who are like, I don't know. I just do one thing and then I do another thing. I don't know what I'm going to do next. Who cares? Well, but that's the that second part. That is, that's kind of the only way you can do it, though. I mean, you can't, I certainly can't write a book thinking about how this is going to fit in to the next five books I write or whatever. Like that, that's not possible. It's like you're, I'm, you're only sort of doing whatever it is you're doing at the time. And, you know, I, I, you know, so there's, there's kind of no way around it. It's like, it is, you know, it's like, okay. So when I was young, say when I was in college, if somebody would go up to you and say like, what would you rather have? Would you rather have a lot of success as a writer right now and be famous, but then forgotten? Or would you rather, you know, kind of toil away for 30 years and maybe never have a lot of success, but then your writing would live on forever, like Herman Melville or whatever. When I was in college, I just said, oh, option two, of course. Now I would never say that. Like, there's no way that's what I would want. If those are the two possibilities, why? Like, I, I like it's, uh, it, uh, I, I, I would take no, there's, what's the, I mean, the only upside would be, I guess it would be like, if that happened, you know, I guess my, like my kids and their kids and stuff would benefit from sort of like what my estate would create over time. But it's like, as a person, um, I think the older I get, the more limited the meaning of my writing is. There are so many amazing books from the 70s, the 80s, any period that are just completely gone now. Like they're just gone. No one talks about them. No one thinks about them. You might go into a bookstore and look for them and they're not there. Okay. So to imagine somehow that your own work is going to be outside of that. Well, one that suggests that your own perception of your work is really inflated and just like it's that you just that that somehow you think you understand about do you understand something about your own work that other people cannot or i guess the other option and maybe i would be closer to this is the acceptance that this is arbitrary and completely capricious and that it is possible that uh you know something i do you know exists in perpetuity but it's not really any reflection on me it's just that, that it just it happened because some things that happens to some things. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The most emotional chapter for me in the 90s was the chapter about video stores uh, because I used to work in a video store and I consider my life something of a like um, video store culture kind of experience. Like I, um, I'm like a, a collector and an obsessive. My father was a, a deadhead, a Grateful Dead tape collector and that kind of ethos I think echoed to me. And you write about how the video store um, allowed this wave of directors, let's say Quentin Tarantino being the most famous among them, to 
make content, which sort of feels like it has no references outside of the video store itself. It's content made up of other content. And I've slowly been feeling um, in my own consumption, the feeling, I think you actually just said earlier in this interview, uh, something about Mark Fisher uh, referencing this, but a deceleration of culture. Uh, more and more culture seems to have becoming from inside the video store, whether it's like Marvel movies or um, music, or you could really almost look at any form of culture. And there's a pretty strong argument of there's sort of less new getting made than there was during the period like that you write a lot about, which is your own teenage years as a listener. Where does that whole equation like leave you as a writer who really plums the depths of this culture? Oh, uh, as a writer, I, uh, no problem whatsoever. No concern. You got, you got plenty of material. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's not really possible to imagine a situation where like we run out of things to write about, partially because now it is wholly acceptable to write about the same things over and over again. I mean, the amount of anniversary pieces that are now part of the way the media operates is insane. I mean, you can celebrate the 35th anniversary of a record that no one cared about at the time and hasn't for 35 years, but it's like it's on the calendar or whatever. I mean, the thing about the, the slow cancellation of the future, I mean, I, I probably should have written about that more in the book because I, I do think as someone who sort of follows this pretty closely, uh, the slow cancellation of the future, as he talks about, like maybe there's nothing inherently bad about it, but what it means is like, it means that everything is to some degree now retro and that it is impossible because we have such, you know, immediate access to the entire history of all art, all political thought, all literature, all of that. It's very difficult to come up with something that is sort of a move beyond what is already there. You know, like, like the example that Fisher uses is he's, you know, he's watching television one day and a video comes on and it's an Arctic monkeys video. And he covered post-punk very closely. So he's watching this video and the way it is shot, the way they dress, the way the music is, the way they are acting, everything about it makes him believe this must have been a band he somehow missed, you know, like in 1988 or whatever, um, that somehow this slipped through the cracks of his sort of kind of, you know, omnivorous take on culture. And it's like, oh, but then he finds out, well, this is new. This is a new thing. And it's not an homage to the past. They are that. Like what they are presenting and what they are attempting to do and their entire aesthetic is that. And you just kind of see this like all the time now where, you know, if we took a clip from an obscure 1965 movie and then another clip from an obscure 1980 movie and you showed somebody who had no understanding of either film, but never seen either film, didn't know any of the performers in it, none of the actors, they could still easily tell you which one came first. They could look at it for five seconds they could listen to them talk for 10 seconds and they would know, well, this one came in 65 and this one came in 80. Something has changed. That's not really possible with a movie from 2005 and a movie from 2020. Like they, they, they would appear, they would feel everything about them would be almost identical. Um, and that's very strange when you think about it. I mean, if, if you would have taken the music of 1991, and you would have brought it back and played it for someone in 1971. You just kind of pick random, you pick Nirvana, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Tribe Called West, you know, whatever. Bring that back, play that to people in 1971. They would have said, this isn't music. Like it would have seemed dissident and confusing and it would not have seemed melodic and the, would have seemed way too loud and all of these things. That experience is not the way it is now. You could take music from now and move it back 20 years, play it for those people, and they would have think, oh, it just came out. And, and it's got to be the internet. It's the only explanation for this. In that instead of sort of moving through culture in a linear way, 
culture is now more like a very shallow ocean. It's not deep. It's very shallow, but we can access any part of it. You can go to any part in this ocean with a bucket, pick something up, and there you have like, oh, this is what people were doing uh, in spring of 1994 or whatever. You know? um, and as a consequence, it is creating this this strange static thing. And it's, it's I'm glad you use like this idea of like the deceleration of culture. Because starting after World War II, the idea was culture is accelerating. Like the idea of an accelerated culture was just central to everything. I feel like I wrote about this in the 90s as a journalist constantly. Um, and the internet seemed like this is going to be the ultimate accelerant of this. Like nothing is going to accelerate the acceleration of culture like this mode of communication. And then when it became ubiquitous, it sort of stopped everything. Or, or made it so difficult to get beyond the present moment in a creative way when, you know, the expectation now, like there was this thing about Billie Eilish a, a couple years ago where she was on, like on the Jimmy Kimmel show. And he asked her if like she knew who Van Halen was and she didn't. And then there was like this little kind of, kind of discourse dust up, right? Whether it was like, oh, that's, it's insane that she doesn't know who this important band was from the past. And then some people were like, it's not her job to know that. What does she care about this, this ancient thing? The fact that that question exists at all is an example of how we have moved into almost like a molasses of cultural thought, you know, like the, the likelihood of a, like a father or a mother taking their son or daughter, like, to a U2 concert and they both like this band, that's very possible. That was not possible in the not so distant past that a parent and a kid could both like the same artist and view that artist as their favorite. Like, and now that's, that's, that's common. And that's, it, it's, it's sort of changing the way we experience time. This is the thing that as just a person sort of concerns me uh, because something is, is shifting about the way time feels. And since time is a construction that can actually happen. Yeah. I mean, knowing that, like, how do you be a critic uh, of the molasses? How do you write criticism within that sort of static, timeless uh, space? Like another example is I'm about 10 years younger than you. And so the period of my life, uh, that you're writing about in the 90s would be uh, the aughts. But I don't think that there can be a book like this about the aughts. Like, I don't think it is distinctive in that way. Well, the first thing I would say is, you know, the 90s were the last decade of the 20th century. I sort of suspect they might be the last decade. Like, I, I don't think that the idea of of these periods of time having these kind of immutable meetings like we definitely have a sense of what the eighties were like. We definitely have a sense of what the sixties were like. We definitely have a sense of what the 1920s were like. Um, now granted, maybe it is very possible that 20 years from now, maybe the first 10 years of the 21st century will seem to have this texture that we weren't aware of at the time or that was there. And that was like, it was so present that it became invisible. That is possible. Although I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen. I, I feel as though we're kind of shifting toward this idea of a perpetual present, an omnipresent sense that all history is happening at the same time. Um, you, you see this the way people think about history now and like their absolute unwillingness to accept the idea that people in the past may have thought about things differently than they do now. And that what we need to do is like, think about the past exactly as we think about the present and that the morals or the values we have now have to be applied to everyone through time. I mean, that's, that's an example of all history happening at once. Now you're saying as a critic, what does one do with that? Um, well, it's tough because one thing that I have really seen happen is, is, Criticism has gravitated toward the most commercially popular things like the likelihood of, of seeing like critical agreement over a Harry Styles record or a Marvel movie or whatever. That's very common now 
that that like everyone would say this huge thing is amazing or, or this huge thing is terrible all at the same time because the culture is so splintered that it's hard to find things that a viable audience understands collectively unless you pick the biggest thing possible. Like it's, it's like there, there's so many different things now that you can be interested in or be into that to sort of just like what I always was able to do as a culture writer is just follow my own personal interest. Like one thing people used to always ask me when I would do book readings or like when I would talk to colleges, they would say like, oh, um, you know, you write about popular culture. Um, so like, uh, so like, do you feel an obligation to like watch Grey's Anatomy to know what everybody else or watch the Kardashians or whatever, when that was new, whatever it's like, do you watch this? Because it's like, everyone's into it. And I never, ever did. Like I, I, I never, ever got into something based on the fact that, well, um, I need to know this in order to know what's kind of going on. In fact, I would almost do the opposite. I remember writing one thing about how, like, I didn't know anything about Harry Potter. And it was like, I wonder in the future if this is going to be a problem for me. Because in the same way, people make references to Star Wars now, or like, you know, or political figures talk about like the Matrix or whatever. It's like, am I going to just be totally confused when people make you know, these references to things, muggles or whatever, whatever a muggle is, I know that word, but like, will I be, will I be completely confused by this, you know, because I didn't follow this. And I was like, well, I guess we'll just see what happens. Um, now I don't think that's how it works for people. I, did, I don't think it's possible for someone to be a generalist critic like I was and just sort of pursue what's interesting to them. Now they have to figure out either, well, what are the biggest things that everyone's talking about and I'm going to weigh in on that, or I'm going to become this specialist that I, that I like, you know, that the only thing I really know about is like SEC football or something. It's like, all I do is think about this one idea over and over and over again. So when somebody has, you know, wants to read about some specific idea, they will find me as this, you know, this, like this person who, uh, is, is really like, you know, an, an expert on this. And, you know, those are two things that I'm just, I'm not that way. Like I just, I, I can't fake interest in things I'm not interested in. And I can't be someone who only thinks about one thing. I just, it's just not, it's just not how I am. I like my idea with criticism was always like, if I'm writing about you know, subject A, and it's a band. How can I connect that to this experience I also have with sports? And how does this sort of dovetail with the way everyone sort of thinks about, you know, uh, collective labor or whatever? It's like it was, I was always trying to connect things outside of themselves to sort of understand them in a new way. And now that's not really how it is. As I recall your early books compared to the 90s, there was a little bit more you in them. Not not you in terms of your opinions, but like you out in the world doing things and interacting with people. Is that just something you do less in your life now as a adult? Well, I wouldn't, you know, I just, I wouldn't write about my life like that anymore. I mean, I, it's... I mean, it's a weird thing. I don't regret having done that because I'm happy how things worked out. And that was an essential part of it. Like, like the, the idea of doing cultural criticism that was in many ways, memoir writing, that was absolutely the reason I was able to appeal to people who didn't normally read cultural criticism. I mean, I'm just, I'm sure of it because it was like, they weren't in their mind. They weren't really reading cultural criticism. They were just kind of writing like a personal essayist. Um, but it's what I did then. And I, I wouldn't do it now. I wouldn't write about my family, which is the main part of my life now, or my kids and my wife. And, you know, it's like, I, I wouldn't write about those details um, in order to forward ideas about some cultural subject. Like I wouldn't be like, um, I'm going to use my kids experience with the Beatles to write about the Beatles. I would never do that. You know, I just, I think that I, I just wouldn't, you know, I mean like killing yourself to live of all the books I've written. That is the one I like the most because 
it does feel like it's the one time where I wrote something that if I ever go back and read it, I'll be able to almost be transported back to that time in my life. But I will never write a book like that again. I will never write about myself that candidly. And I will absolutely never write about other people in my life that casually. I mean, I was so fucking crazy. I just, I, at the time when I wrote that, I was like writing about all these you know, women I'd been dating and stuff like that. Uh, like my thinking was, boy, you know, if they wrote a book and I was in it, I would be fascinated. I'd be fascinated to see what they think about our relationship. But of course, not everybody thinks that way. Like it's just, it was, it was just insane that I did. I can't believe it in some ways because, and what I, it's not, it's not that I can't believe that I did it because it wasn't like I invented something. Lots of people have done it. I can't believe that I never thought about the meaning of it while I was doing it. I was, I just didn't. I did like, I, 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 I thought about like, well, I want this to be accurate and I want this to be interesting and I want it to be entertaining and I want it to be clear. I did not think of any kind of what's the morality or ethics of doing this or like, uh, what is the thing driving me to do this? Why am I, you know, I just, I didn't think of those things. Um, you know, it, it's real interesting in that book, uh, by chance, there's a section where I meet my wife. Uh, like the person I'm married to now, like I, I had no idea where we'd get married, but I, I meet this woman and I, I was writing kind of as I go, like, you know, like I was writing almost in a diary form, like as I was traveling across the country, because of the book, I'm traveling like across the country, going to places where like various musicians have died. Um, and like, I meet my wife and I write about it. And it's kind of an amazing thing now that, I mean, like everybody remembers, I don't know if you're married, but I'm sure you remember the night you met your wife, but like, you probably didn't write 500 words about it just by chance, you know? Um, so stuff like that, I think is like, that's incredible. Like what a lucky thing to have that have happened to me. Like that's what is, you know, it's like crazy. But uh, I also think it's like, that's weird. It's, 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 it's weird that I did that. I think I was inspired to ask that question because um, I'm a big listener to the Bill Simmons podcast mm -hmm. and you were on, uh, I want to say it was maybe when Eddie Van Halen died and you were talking about the pandemic and you said something to the effect of this really stuck with me. You were like, yeah, my kids are home. I mean, I know in the future I'm going to be looking back on this time. Like, wow, it was so great. I spent all that time with my kids, but like in the real time while it's happening, it can't be over soon enough. You know, the, the pandemic is an interesting situation in the sense that I think I'm sure a lot of people felt like 2020 was the hardest year of their life. It was definitely the hardest year of my adult life. Um, and yet I do think there's going to be a time, probably like when I'm on my deathbed, where I'll be like, if I can get back to anywhere, I, I want to get back to then. Like when I was with my kids all day. You know, sometimes it's like, you're doing something uh, with your kid and it's not super fun. It's like, especially when they're little, you know, like, you, they, you know, they're trying to go to sleep and they need someone to like hold their hand for, you know, forever, just kind of be in the room and how uh, you're just sitting there. And it's like, you know, it takes a long time and you're thinking about all the things you want to do. I do imagine in the future, if I had a time machine, this is probably the point I'd want to go back to though. I'd want to go back to that time when the relationship between me and my daughter or my son was so kind of deep and profound that like we just had to be as close to each other for them to feel good. And my ability to be there makes them feel good. Like this is a, a real problem. I really care about that. I can solve for the most part, real problems that are real difficult. Like there's nothing I can do. I'm helpless, but with a kid, sometimes you can actually solve that problem. You just need to love them and be there. So sometimes when I was, when I do that, if I'm in that situation and I'm bored, I just tell myself, actually, you moved back in time. You're actually 97 and you're dying. And they gave you access to a time machine and you came back here to remember this. I think that's about as good a place to end as any. Uh, thank you so much for this interview. Hey, well, thanks for doing it.
That was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to my guest, Chuck Klosterman. Uh, thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Seth Kelly, who edited this episode, and Susan Peterson, who is our intern. Uh, thanks to everyone over at Vox Media. We'll be back next week. Support for Long Form this week came from listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.